You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. I came across a quote recently by the late, great Carl Jung, the famous psychiatrist and uh, philosopher of the 20th century. The quote is, and this is a paraphrase really of something he said, religion is a defense against the experience of God. I thought that was really interesting. Religion is a defense against the experience of God. When Jung speaks of religion here, I don't think he means all religion, but I think he's talking about what we would call conservative or traditional religion, this religion that is focused on or is over-reliant on creeds and dogma and doctrine and right belief and this idea that there's one right religion and it's ours. And if you're not with us, you're doomed. And you know all other religions or spiritual wisdoms are false and evil. Such religion um, is the kind that I think Jung was talking about. And instead of bringing us closer to God, can actually be that which keeps God at a distance or shields us from God. And by God, I think Jung meant this all-inclusive, all-loving God that we find as Christians revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Think about it. Jesus was despised, rejected by the religious authorities of his day because he revealed that we don't need priests and temples and holy books in order to be one with God or experience God. We don't need religion, per se, to encounter God. Jesus said in John's gospel, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. In other words, we are all one, God and us, us and each other. It's all one thing. Jesus said, we too are the sons and daughters of God, not just him. But we too are the sons and daughters of God. Jesus revealed that we are just as connected to God as he is. Whether we're a Jew or a Samaritan or a Gentile, didn't matter. In this way, he called us to awaken to our divine nature and the divine nature of all human beings everywhere. But that's a very scary idea to some people who are very reliant on religion to give them a sense of chosenness, a sense of elite status, this idea that I'm right and you're wrong, my religion is the only right one, all the others are evil and false, Religion is enormously powerful in its ability to grant us that sense of superiority, elite status, um, certainty, power, power over the other. And all the comfort that comes with that, it's, it's why some people fear losing it, their religion. In this way, religion is a defense or a shield against the knowledge that we are all one with God and could never not be. Some people want to shield themselves from that 
because again, it threatens their sense of superiority, their power, their certainty, which they take great comfort in. Many of us used to think that way. Many of us had to go through what's called deconstruction in order to have this realization or this awakening, if you will. Dropping our religious defenses, dropping our religious shields was absolutely necessary for us to realize this. I think that's often what deconstruction really is. Deconstructing that shield, deconstructing those religious defenses that keep us from God. Ironically, it's often religion that keeps us from God. Therefore, deconstruction, while on the surface, may seem like, may feel like, you know, stepping away from God. I think it's actually a way of stepping closer to God. If by God we mean this all-inclusive, all-loving God that we find revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who tore down the walls of religion in his day, tore down the religious barriers that were set up by the religious authorities, as is always the case, these religious barriers that, that separate us from God, supposedly, and us and each other. Jesus tore all that down. So that's what I think Jung is getting at when he says religion is a defense against the experience of God. Another way of putting it is that he's saying that religion is a defense against mysticism. Mysticism is something I talk a lot about here. Um, and it's this ancient, it's not new age, it's not new, it's this ancient and pan-religious, meaning multi-religious idea of oneness. This idea that all things are really one thing, all things are part of God. God is a part of all, or all is a part of God. There's different nuances or degrees of oneness, depending upon the particular brand of mysticism. But that's the basic gist of it. It's about oneness, and I think that's really cool. Maybe you do too, at least I do. <laughs> but this idea of, of mysticism and oneness can be pretty scary, because if everything is really one thing, then there is no individual self or ego, really. There is no I or me, really. There is only the infinite whole of which I am forever an inextricable part of, whether it be in this form or another. And that can be a very unsettling idea if you really contemplate it. That can be a very unsettling idea if we're really attached to our individuality, our, our ego, our sense of self, me, I. And here we find the deeper meaning of Jung's words. Religion is not just a defense against an experience with this all-loving, all-inclusive God, but religion is a defense against the infinite and ego death itself. The knowledge that I am one with the infinite, and therefore there is no I, really. There is only we, us. Because I am really everything, and everything is really me. This idea is often met with fear, but when embraced, ultimately leads to serenity, liberation, and a deeper love of not just ourselves, but everyone and everything. And what could be better than that?
But again, it can be unsettling at first. And traditional religion often functions as something that shields us from that experience. That experience with God, the infinite, the one, whatever you want to call it. Traditional religion often shields us from that experience in order to preserve the ego. But when deconstruction happens, when you lose your religion, so to speak, nothing's there to shield you from that anymore, which is a good thing in my estimation, but it's, it can be scary. This line of thinking reminds me of numerous passages and stories in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, that say, you cannot see God and live. Have you heard of these before? If you see God face to face, the Old Testament says, in numerous places, you die. There's, there's numerous texts, numerous stories that say this, perhaps the most prominent of which can be found in Exodus chapter 33, where the story is that Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai. The Israelites are down in the valley below, and he's, he's up on the mountaintop communing with God because, you know, that's where God always is. He's up there. You got, you got to go up the mountain. Otherwise, it's a, it's a long-distance call. You know, on the mountaintop, it's a short-distance call. You're closer to heaven, I think was the ancient idea. But in the story, Moses is up there in the cloud of God's glory, fire and smoke, and he's communing with God. This is just before God gives him the Ten Commandments, and Moses asks God a daring question. Well, he suggests it, maybe, but he basically asks him, can I see your face? I think the right way he put it was, can I see your glory? Can I see your form? And God replies to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. But look, so God compromises, but look, he says, there is a place by me where you can stand, and I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand, until I have passed by, and then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So Moses was, was basically allowed to see God's arse, <laughs> but not his face. God's backside, that's okay. You, you, you can see that. That's cool, I guess, is the idea. Interesting theology, right? What's, what's all this about? Well, on the surface, I think it has a lot to do with this ancient Hebrew concepts of, of purity and holiness and this idea that God is so pure, so holy, and we are so not, that we cannot stand in his full presence or see him face to face, or we will just be obliterated. This is the idea. But underneath the surface of that theology, I think, is an unconscious existential fear that if we really perceive ultimate reality, because that's what God is, right? ultimate reality, if we really look into the face of the infinite, if we really look into the face of the abyss, there's this fear that we'll just, we'll just lose ourselves. We'll lose touch with our individuality, our ego, our sense of self. We'll, we'll cease to exist as an individual, and we'll, we'll realize that we're just... We're just like everything. Everything is one thing, and we're just part of this abyss, this infinite, whatever you want to call it. And that's terrifying because that's that's a kind of death. The death of the ego, the death of the individual, the, the sense of self, the I, the me, and this realization that we are all part of this greater whole. 
this thing we call the universe or ultimate reality, God. Thus, a direct encounter with the divine is understood as a dangerous thing. One shouldn't get too close, we're told. We're told. Jeffrey Kripal, a religious studies scholar at Rice University that I really like, he talks about how sacred spaces, like, like this one, like churches, synagogues, temples, mosques, he talks about how they've always been seen as places that give us access to the divine while also insulating us from it. Religion has always been that which gives us access to God while keeping God at a safe distance. He suggests that we think of sacred spaces as like nuclear reactors or nuclear power plants. They're designed to harness this incredible energy while keeping it at like safe distance. They're designed to give us access while keeping us at safe distance from its dangerous power. Its dangerous power being the power it has to deconstruct or annihilate the ego. But here's the good news. While this encounter, this experience can be painful at first, it can be absolutely life-giving and life-changing in a positive way. I compare it to the to the common trope found in countless comic books and you know, like the Marvel movies, where we find this superhero, right? And the superhero always begins as just an just an ordinary person, right? Peter Parker, somebody like that, right? It's just an ordinary person that somehow is exposed to this deadly radiation or like a, something dangerous or deadly in the environment, like a like spider bite, right? And yet instead of killing them, it actually gives them superpowers like the Hulk or Captain America or Spider-Man, right? This is similar to what happens in deconstruction. The religious structures that were protecting us and shielding us from the divine are removed and we are now exposed to it. To the, to the infinite, to the void, to this, to this God. And yeah, maybe we think we're going to lose ourselves at first, but we adapt and we discover it's actually liberating and empowering and life-giving. Suddenly we find the power to not only embrace and affirm others with unconditional love, regardless of their beliefs or where they come from, who beforehand we were taught to exclude, to hate and perhaps even harm. Religion taught us that. But now we embrace also the infinite itself and all that the infinite entails, which includes mystery and unknowing. To be one with God in all things is to be one with a holy nothingness, as Rabbi Rubenstein put it, one of the most prominent Jewish thinkers of the 20th century. It is to be one with the deus abscondinus, which is Latin for the hidden God, as Martin Luther put it 500 years ago, and as many medieval church mystics understood God across the centuries. To be one with God, therefore, is to be one with mystery and unknowing itself. Because mystery and unknowing lie at the very heart of reality, and God is reality. So being able to embrace mystery and unknowing is a way of embracing God. Those of us who have undergone deconstruction, I believe, have acquired this, this superpower, if you will. 
while those who haven't undergone deconstruction and are still beholden to religion, they do not have this ability yet because they're still bound to fear. They're still bound to their ego. They're still bound to traditional conservative religion, which shields them from this experience of God. This reminds me of a, of a funny meme I saw recently online that said, evangelicals are the largest unreached group in America. <laughs> I love that because it plays on this classic idea, this classic evangelical trope of you know, reaching the unreached, churching the unchurched, converting the unconverted. But maybe they're the ones who need reaching and converting. They're the ones needing an encounter with the living God, the infinite, the one, the all-inclusive, all-loving God of all. And part of what this means is that religion doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a defense or a shield from God. Good religion can actually be that which tears down or deconstructs our defenses and thereby brings us into communion with God and each other. And thereby, again, a deeper communion with the world and each other. I think good religion and good Christianity can do that because, and most of us are Christians here, so let's talk about our Christian context. Christianity is a story about God coming to earth and becoming a mortal finite human being in order to show us that there is no separation between heaven and earth, the divine and the human being. Which is that, that idea, the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in human form completely undermined traditional Jewish thought of the day, which again believed that God is, is too holy for that, too beyond us. Jesus, you, you could not only see God's face and live, but you could touch him. He could touch you. You could eat and drink with him. Jesus said things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said that. At least the gospel says he said, the gospel say he said that. If you've seen God, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Because of this, he was charged and convicted of blasphemy. Killed, sentenced to death by the chief priest for blasphemy, and then turned over to Pilate. And then Pilate had him charged and convicted of crimes against the state, citing a insurrection. But nevertheless, this was his theology. If you've seen me, you've seen God. This is the deeper meaning of the incarnation. It completely undermined the traditional religious notion of Jesus' day that God was separate from us. In Christ, God and us are revealed as one. This is the real power of the gospel, I think. Athanasius, the fourth century Eastern church father, once remarked, God became man so that man might become God. That was church thinking you know, 1,600 years ago. That kind of oneness was early Christian thought. That's how the incarnation was understood. We need to reclaim that. Nothing new age about it. It's not just progressive Christianity, Johnny come lately, whatever. This is ancient Christian thought. 
What about the crucifixion and the resurrection? Well, the crucifixion, I think, is a lesson about the kind of ego death we all must undergo in order to truly live. This is what I think it means to pick up our cross and follow Christ. We must die to ourselves and live for love and oneness instead. And only by doing so will we truly live and find so-called abundant and everlasting life. This is the path. This is the way. This idea is fully realized in Christ's resurrection and on the day of Pentecost when God's Spirit, we're told, is poured out into the world and into us and once and for all. God's oneness with us in our world is now fully realized. To live into that understanding is a kind of, we would use words in the Christian tradition, salvation, redemption, reconciliation, transfiguration, justification, conversion, to use all the big fancy Bible words. This is what they really mean, I think. They're not so much theological in nature, but existential. They're about what it means to be human what it means to be at one with the divine in all things. And as Christians, we have a sacrament that we practice every week called the Lord's Supper, which reinforces this idea of our oneness with the divine, our oneness with God. For here we find the body and the blood of God in flesh, broken and scattered among us as bread and, in this case, gluten-free crackers and grape juice. But the idea is that God is crackers and grape juice. And when we consume that, we are saying God is in me and I am in God. And wheat and grapes are God and everything is God. That's the deeper meaning of communion. To commune with God, to be one with God and one with each other. And we practice this sacrament, this ancient Christian sacrament, by serving it to each other. It's not the priest, the pastor up front that does it all. You do it. We pass it among ourselves. You are to be God in the world, God for each other. You are already. But by partaking in this, it's a statement of faith. It's a holy practice. It's a way of engaging in that in a tactile way. You are one with God as revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what this sacrament is about. And here at Central, you, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you believe or don't believe or not sure what you believe, Christ's table was open to all. He ate and drank with even the so-called unholy people, the heretics. He didn't keep anybody back from his table. This isn't my table. This is his table. So you are welcome to partake and be one with God here. And again, the way we do it is I get it started, but you pass it among each other. You take a little gluten-free cracker, and you dip it in the grape juice, you receive it, and you pass it on to the next person. If it's not for you, that's cool. You don't have to. But be blessed on this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion.
So as part of our time together here every week, we always finish by a little discussion. If you all want to have a discussion, usually somebody does, um, but also can just be like questions, you know, you have about what I talked about, comments, reflections you might have on this subject matter of specifically today, how religion can function as a defense or a shield against the experience of God. Um, but yeah, anybody have any questions or comments or reflections about that? Or perhaps anybody want to share their story of deconstruction and reconstruction or how they've um, changed in their perception of the relationship to God over the years. But yeah, anybody this morning? Oh, wow. Two quick hands. We'll go with Athena and then Emily. Um, you were saying that we're all one. And I was just curious, um, this idea of if we're all one, are we all God and Jesus? Um, that's a good question. So in, from my, again, this is my point of view, right? So this is a church where I get to share my point of view, but just because I'm the guy up front doesn't mean anybody has to agree with me, which is probably something you're not used to hearing from a pastor. <laughs> I know the truth and this is it. And if you don't believe, um, so yeah, I think when Jesus said things like I am in the father and you are in me, and I am in you. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, all of that circular language, I think, is meant to reinforce this idea that we in God's Spirit, however you understand that, the Spirit of Christ, we are all one. Yeah, that's my belief. That's what I believe. Communion, partaking in the body and the blood, consuming God, for lack of a better way of putting it, consuming God. God is now in me, and I am in him, and we're all one. Yeah, Athena, that's that's what I believe. Thank you. Yeah. Emily. Um, so I had like a thought about how like conservatives say that the ultimate price paid was Jesus dying on the cross for our sentence, right? But like while you were telling this story, I thought to myself, like, what if the ultimate price was him coming to earth and losing that? you know, thing in the sky that you can't see his face or that you want, you know what I mean? Like, what if that was the ultimate price and we focus too much on the dying than we do on the whole point, which I think is, which we've talked about is the oneness of us and that there is no separation. And really what we focus on on this earth is not our personal relationship with Jesus. Like Jesus didn't come to earth and say, what's most important here is your relationship with me as I them on the earth, right? Like that's not what it was. It's our job on this earth to do exactly what he did. He came here to teach us how to be, which was the oppressed and the poor and the blah, blah, blah. Like that's the whole thing. So it's like, what if the ultimate price was him coming here to literally show us the whole point? I dig it. That sounds good to me. <laughs> that's all I can say to that. Yeah, that works. Philippians 2, you know, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, becoming one of us, you know? You know, there's different language in the Bible about all of this, but this idea of, you know, I don't think Jesus ever lost that connection to God, so to speak, you know, even though we find him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? Which is part of the human experience. We experience that sense of alienation. Let's be honest. 
There's moments of suffering where we all cry out, God, where the hell are you? Jesus had that experience. That's part of what it means, I think, to, to be a, a spiritual person, to be on this journey of faith. Let's be honest about it. We, we feel that sense of alienation and separation. But I think what's important is to remember we're not really alienated and separated. And to always go back to that, I think. Um, but yeah. Do you want to comment on that, Emily? I mean, also, like, if you think about if you're a person who always is giving to other people, there is a part of you that does feel alone. Sometimes when you need someone, you don't always get that in return. And I also feel like that the conservatives want to accept that suffering happens and that's it. Whereas I think we accept that suffering happens, but we be with other people in their suffering when our suffering isn't down at the moment. Cause I think it's an ebb and flow because we all get inundated by suffering that we see or feel or whatever. And I think that it's not just accepting and focusing on our relationship with him. It's accepting and being there for other people and their suffering. That yeah. creates the oneness. Yeah. Yeah. I was the hungry person you fed, Jesus said. I was a thirsty person you gave water to. I was the sick person that you took care of. That was me. That was, that was God. When you, when you love your neighbor, you're loving God. There's no distinction. There's no separation. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, somebody else? Comments, questions, anything? Yeah, I was Leanne. to say, Leanne, do you have anything to say? <laughs> Yet again, here we are. Emily has spoken. I have a response. Um, no, I just piggybacking of what she's saying as well. Um, I think what strikes me so much, and there's so many things, but is that Jesus was able to both have a balanced ego and be a person in the world because there's the other extreme where you touched upon where, and churches take advantage of this, where we're all one, even like, you know, yoga cults, we're all one, do this for the, like, and you lose yourself in the cult, you lose yourself in the leadership, they take advantage, and the oneness aspect of it gets leveraged, and you lose, you can lose your sense of self, which is also important to have. So he, like that sort of dual nature, could fully embrace the oneness, but also like one of my favorite verses, and I'm not a Bible expert, but this has always stuck with me, um, is John 8, 14, where he says, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. And that always stuck with me as someone who tends to sometimes go towards what other people want um, and get kind of sucked into their needs and wants instead of just standing firm. To me, it's like everything you're saying, I agree with. And also it's in balance and conversation with, do you know where you come from? Do you know where you're going? Do you know who you are? And like, he knew those things, but in a way that wasn't obtrusive or harmful towards others, but was just quietly confident. So to me, it's both are patterns to live by. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you for adding that balance. That's really good. Somebody else today. Okay. Well, let us conclude our time together as we always do by saying this, 
this joint benediction together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you for being here, everybody. Thank you to those of you who joined us via Zoom. Go in peace. Let's take um, five minutes and gather back in here on this side of the sanctuary for our, con our annual congregational business meeting. Um, everybody's welcome to stay, but if that's not your thing, that's cool. We'll see you next time. <laughs>